Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your heart, for the world's poor, spiritually poor, Lord, those who have suffered the impoverishment of all sorts of overwhelming circumstances. Thank you that you gather us together today in this family called a church. Not a whole lot of commonality except you drawing us together to enjoy Christ, to feast on forgiveness and grace, to receive new strength for the incredible battles that were a part of last week and will meet us again tomorrow. Thank you for a day of rest, a day of reflection, a day of focus on Jesus, the Holy Spirit, God the Father, the triune God from whom flows all energy and life and purpose. God, we come to you today confessing sin. We want to be clean. Confessing doubt, we want to believe. Confessing weakness, we would love for you to use us in that weakness. Here we are, God. We ask that the world, the world would be affected by our gathering today. May the hope of Christ ripple from this place to all the lands of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark Twain, humorist and a writer, American writer, said, the two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. There are a lot of empty people in this world trying to figure out that second question, and the Bible says the answer is that God has created you to know him, and he desires to fill your life with the life of Jesus Christ and to be transformed by his holy and loving character. If you've come to know this God, then there is a second reason that finding out why you've been born, and that is that God wants to use you and your abilities and opportunities so that others around this world will experience a relationship with him. And if this church staff is doing a good job, then we will effectively train you and offer you compelling reasons every Sunday to use your life, to give your life for the sake of others. Ephesians 4, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service that the whole body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So when you look at verse 11, there are five leadership positions in the church and the role of all of them is to compel you and train you to do the work of the ministry. You say, well, I thought that's what we paid the staff to do. No, precisely just the opposite. You pay us not to give into that temptation. You pay us to remind you that God has gifted you with these unbelievable abilities, immeasurable abilities. And if you don't fulfill those, you're going to miss the very purpose for which you are created. We're going to talk much more in depth next week about Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. But what I want to do today is to talk about the motivation for you giving your life away. That's how you do it through your gifts. But I want to talk about the motivation because 
I think there's a supreme motivation that's often overlooked. We quickly go to verse 11 and through 13. And I want to go the, the overlooked verse before it of why serve Christ. Verse 7, Ephesians 4, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. That word gifts in verse 8 lets you know that he's talking in this passage about, he's going to be talking about spiritual gifts, even though this word doma in verse 8 is not really the word that the Bible uses for spiritual gifts that's talking about gifts in general, like when a man would give his wife a frying pan for Mother's Day, that would be a general gift. That would be a doma gift. It might be a dumb gift. <clears throat> so, but just in context, when Paul is talking about gifts here, he's, he's talking about, he wants you to understand what he's talking about. The word grace up in verse 7 is it's a spiritual gift. This is what we're going to define over the next two weeks. A spiritual gift is an ability that you possess that causes someone you served to be drawn to Christ. That's what it means to have a spiritual gift. It's different than this Doma gift. Actually, in the New Testament, the, the true gifts of the, of, the, of the Holy Spirit are called charismaton. And you obviously can see the word charismatic from that word, but it's not a Doma gift. It's called a charismaton because it's, it is a very special gift orchestrated by the Holy Spirit combining your wiring and your experiences in order to give you an ability to influence others for Christ. And that's the word that Paul sort of uses in verse 7. doesn't use the word doma. He uses, he uses a shortened form of this word charismatine. So when I was studying this this week, I said, he's talking about gifts. Why did he, why did he shorten the word? Why didn't he just use charismatine? Because he did over there in 1 Corinthians 12, but he didn't in Ephesians 4. The word charismatine is, the word actually means an undeserved gift. Like somebody gives you an undeserved present. Charis, a shortened form of that, is simply a way of describing the kindness of God that gives gifts. The reason he gives undeserved gifts is because he's kind. So Paul says everybody has been given, because of God's kindness, a gift. That's why he shortened it, to make a point. It's the same word, the kindness of God, that's used a few verses earlier in the glorious passage that describes why you are in the kingdom of God. Ephesians 2.4, because of his great love for us, God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by charis, his kindness that you're saved. So when Paul talks about a spiritual gift, he's talking about the kindness of God. So why all of this? Why, well, I know you didn't come to church for a Greek lesson. Why all the Greek? Because when we talk about you serving the Lord in this church, many of you, the first impulse, the reaction to that is, I can't serve the Lord because I'm not worthy. I'm unclean. I've messed my life up too much. And God is trying to tell you, 
He gives you gifts the same way that he saves you out of his kindness. Has nothing to do with your merit. I'm up here today because of the kindness of God. I'm preaching to you not because I've got life together, but God says, Richard, in my kindness, I want to use you to encourage other people. It pleases God to use you to help other people know him even though you also struggle in your own relationship with him. This is what grace is all about. So that's why it's called a charis gift. It's short for charismata, a Holy Spirit gift, but it's by the kindness of God is why you can serve him. And on the other end of the spectrum, If you were ever to be used by God to do great and mighty things, he wants you also to remember the only reason that it worked out for you to have large influence is also because of his kindness. Nothing about your merit and your worth and your deserving. So the first reason that I want you to use your gift for the Lord is because he's given you a gift out of kindness. The second reason is because what exactly Jesus did how carefully he gave you the gift. But to each one of us, grace, charis, kindness has been given as Christ apportioned it or as he measured it from the Greek word metron, a unit of measure from which we get our word metric. So you need to understand there's nothing arbitrary about what God decided you would be good at. Carefully thought it out. You ever received a... a, a, um, a gift at Christmas that you sort of knew that when the person gave it, it was an obligatory gift. They didn't really think it out. They just felt like they had to give you something that Christmas. And so you said, thank you. And you immediately put it in a drawer. That's not the kind of gifts that God gives. He measures it out exactly for what you need in order to accomplish the purpose that he has assigned for you. God is sovereign in the distribution of his gifts, and he never gives you a gift that's intended to be put in a drawer and not used. Everything about your life matters in relation to that gift. Everything about your life, where you work, how you were raised, all the influences of your life are part of God measuring out what you can do for him because these works that he's chosen for you were assigned to you before The world began. This is how important that you use your gift. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork, his craftsmanship created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance before the world. So everything about your life, God has been shaping you in order for you to effectively influence others to be drawn to Christ. And when we look at this verse, I do really specify the word shape. Rick Warren over in, um, in California in his church there years ago developed an acronym of how you were spiritually shaped to serve the Lord. And he spelled out of the word shape. The S is your spiritual gifting by the Holy Spirit. H is the heart desires that God has given your interest A is your abilities, your natural talents that can be used actually supernaturally. P is your personality. And E is your experiences. All of these things God is using in order for you to know where you ought to lay down your life for the 
drawing of other people to Christ. So that's the second reason that I want you to serve is because he's given you a gift in kindness. And secondly, he's particularly chosen what kind of gift you would get. There's a third reason here in Ephesians chapter 4. But to each one of us, grace has been given. That's the kindness. As Christ apportioned it, that's the measuring. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. And this is the verse that's normally overlooked when we talk about spiritual gifts because people don't like to do the hard work and think about what in the world is Paul talking about there. Well, you're not really going to appreciate verse 8, ascended, took captives, giving gifts, until you understand what Paul was thinking about when he wrote that. Paul was thinking about Psalm 68. Now, I just love this. I wish I knew the Bible so well that here's the, the Apostle Paul in a Roman prison cell writing this letter to the, uh, to, the book, uh, to the church in Ephesus and to you. And when he starts talking about why serve, his mind goes to Psalm 68 because he knew the Word of God so well. It's just remarkable. So Psalm 68, I would suggest that you read it today. It's a lovely psalm, a long psalm, but I already know that you said, no, I'm really busy today. I'm going to be laying down most of the afternoon. So I know you're probably not going to get to Psalm 68, so let me just tell you a little bit about it. It's a psalm in which God very tenderly is leading his people all the way from slavery in Egypt to the capital city in Jerusalem where they eventually settled. So it's lots of, if you like military stuff, it's a big military psalm, all the, all the battles that were won along the way. You sort of get that flavor how it starts. May God arise, may his enemies be scattered, may his foes flee before him. But may the righteous rejoice before God. He is a father to the fatherless. I read that in my opening thing. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, and God sets the lonely in families. If you're looking for any verse in the Bible that God says, this is what I want my church to be, you can set your eyes on verse 6. God sets the lonely in a family. That's what he wants his, his church to be. So you can imagine 2.5 million slaves rescued from Egypt. God takes them through the night, through the Red Sea, and for 40 years, he's leading them on a journey. This is all that's wrapped up in Psalm 68. And every moment they obeyed him, God gave them victory. God gave the Israelites victory over their enemies. When you, God, went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth shook. And the Lord has come from Sinai. That's where the Lord first met with his people on the mountain. He gave them the Ten Commandments on that mountain, Sinai, in his sanctuary. And then he led them all the way, in verse 29, to the temple at Jerusalem. You say, what does this have to do with Ephesians 4? Thank you for asking, because this is what happened when everybody arrived in Jerusalem. This is the verse we just read in Ephesians 4. When you ascended on high, you took many captives and you received gifts from the people. So this is a picture of God with his people 
through the wilderness, all sorts of hardships, 40 years, finally going to the capital city of Jerusalem. And many people think that this psalm was written after God's people had experienced a great victory. The Ten Commandments had been stolen by some other military tribe. And they had, Israel had defeated them, brought back the Ten Commandments, and brought it to Jerusalem. And it was a big celebration. And that's what all of Psalm 68 is about. This is all the stuff that's in the mind of the Apostle Paul when he writes in Ephesians 4. Now, so let's go back there thinking this is what Paul's thinking. Military, triumph, God's enslaved people leading them to the high city of Jerusalem where there's big time party. So now let's, with that in mind, let's read, read the verse. But each, to each one of us, God's kindness has been given to give us a gift, measured out for us exactly what we need. You're the wrong name wasn't on the wrapping paper. You got the gift you're supposed to get. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, there's Psalm 68, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Then we add to that, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions and he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So you can't find a better picture of the gospel than in Ephesians 4, 9, and 10 over and over again. Descended, ascended, descended, ascended. This is Paul's taking Psalm 68 and now he's changing it up a bit. No longer is there some arbitrary king in the Old Testament, but now it's Jesus Christ. It is a picture of Jesus Christ descending from heaven to earth to die on the cross, rise from the dead, and to ascend back to heaven so that he could give the gift of the Holy Spirit to his people. That's what he did. He ascended to heaven, and as soon as he ascended to heaven, he gave the Holy Spirit, and nobody illustrates the gift, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit more than the Apostle Peter. He denied Christ at the cross. You would think his life was over. Jesus forgave him, and then he picked him to preach the first sermon in the history of the church. 3,000 people were saved, and when everybody asked, how did that happen, Peter exclaimed, Jesus, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out on what you now see and hear in Jerusalem. So this is why I love Ephesians 4. It is a picture of a victorious king pouring out the Holy Spirit, taking captives, and giving the Holy Spirit to the church. Now, let me tell you what I believe, why. You say, well, what about the captives? What do the captives mean? Who got taken captive? Well, um, I think Paul, when he was writing, remember Paul was in a Roman prison writing to Ephesians and to, to the church of Ephesus and to the church of Colossae. And I think when Paul was writing, he had it in his mind what is known as the Roman triumph. Paul was in Rome writing this letter and he had in mind the great Roman triumph that occurred after a uh, military victory. 
If a Caesar had been victorious in battle, that means if he killed more than 5,000 people militarily in a conquest, there was a great parade through the city. In fact, if you were to go to Rome today and see the Arch of Titus, this was erected after the emperor Titus achieved a great victory in AD 70 over the Jews. So this is, this is what would happen in Rome when a great victory would occur. This is called a Roman triumph. First, the trumpeters, all the musicians blowing their trumpets, would enter the city. Then there were wagon loads of all of the spoils that were taken from war. And then behind the trumpets and the wagons, then there would be floats. And on these floats would be replicas of all the cities that were captured. And that behind the floats, we're not the first ones to invent floats and Christmas parades, behind the floats would be all of the prisoners that had been captured in war, then the emperor, and then all the fighting men. And they would parade through the city all the way to the emperor's throne. And Paul had in mind this huge parade going on, except it's not a parade about a king who's conquered his enemies, but it's a parade about Jesus Christ giving gifts to his church and conquering everything that would dissuade us from serving him. Look at this verse in Colossians 2. This is the same tone that you see in Ephesians, Ephesians 4 about this parade. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. These are the prisoners that's referred to in Ephesians chapter 4. So I want you to think about King Jesus descending from heaven, dying on a cross, rising from the grave, ascending back to heaven, giving the Holy Spirit, and taking captive every prisoner of condemning guilt that would dissuade you and persuade you that you're unworthy to serve the Lord. And all of those are captured by Christ. There are no more accusing voices, no more Satan telling you why you can't serve the Lord. All of those prisoners have been captured that would, would, would try to tell you that you're disqualified. And the only thing that's left is for now Jesus Christ to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit so you can serve him. That's what's going on in Ephesians 4. That's why you serve the Lord. All of this, ascending, descending, capturing guilt and condemning voices against you, giving you a gift so you can serve him. For what purpose? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. And that's the purpose for all of our serving. Every time you serve Christ, holding a baby, running a camera, greeting somebody at the door, going across the street or going across the ocean, we feel pockets in this world where Christ is not known until we fill all of the universe with his glory. That's what happens through our giving and through our serving, and it takes every one of us to make this massive difference in the world. I was reading this week about the Great Pyramid in Giza, built by King Kufa. It's an architectural wonder. It's made of 2,300,000 
blocks of stone. Each of the stones weigh two and a half tons. The base of the pyramid covers 13 acres. It rises to 3,500 feet. The blocks of stone are so well crafted that the seam between each block is about one ten thousandth of an inch. It took 100,000 workmen 20 years to build that pyramid. And I want to ask you today, of the 2,300,000 stones in this pyramid, which of those stones is unimportant? Every saved, redeemed person in the kingdom of God that Jesus has given his spirit his spirit to a gift to is useful for the universe-wide building up of the hope and love of Christ to spread everywhere. Everybody must serve in this global process. Now, whenever you read Ephesians chapter 4 about Christ descending to the lower regions of the earth, a question will arise. I thought this week, should I answer it, not answer it? People will say, well, how low did he go into the lower regions of the earth? Because the question is always, did he descend into hell? And they ask that question because what, what Paul wants to know is to see the extreme love that Jesus has for you. He was higher than all the heavens and he descended to the lower regions of the earth. And people will know, how low did he go? We can guess. First Peter chapter 3 helps us to guess. Christ also suffered for one for sins. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit, and after being made alive, he went out and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. Oh my goodness. What does that mean? So many people think that sometime after the resurrection, Jesus made a day trip to hell. He was here for 40 days after he rose from the dead. His time is not fully accounted for. I don't know what he did during those 40 days. If he went to hell, I know he went there for one purpose, and that is to proclaim to the imprisoned spirits of the Old Testament, I am Lord. But the bottom line is it doesn't matter where Christ went after his resurrection. The purpose of the church now is to everywhere we go to fill the entire universe with the message of Christ by using our gifts. That's why you have a gift. It's why we establish an orphanage right in the middle of a Hindu village in India. It's why we drill water wells in West Africa among Muslim communities. It's why you take Christ to your university. It's why business men and women take Christ to the workplace. Because every place that your feet step is a place that we want the hope and the message of Christ to be expressed through your spiritual gifting. That's what God told the military leader Joshua. Every place you set your foot, I will give you victory. This is the mindset God wants us to have. Every place of spiritual darkness, our gifts light up that place of darkness. Every spiritual need, 
every person who needs encouraging and prayer, every hopeless person, addicted person, everywhere we go, God is using our gifts to light up that place with the purposes of Christ. I want to leave you today with just one thought. You are far more gifted. You are far more forgiven. And you are far more influential than you ever imagined. So get ready to go serve the Lord because a king has given you a gift. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that you would descend from heaven to earth through Christ to the cross and even below the cross to the grave and maybe even to the lower regions of the earth. We don't know. But you descended, O oh God, for the purpose of forgiving us of our sins, granting us righteousness, and then ascending to heaven that you might pour out the Holy Spirit on our little, weak, wandering bodies in the wilderness. Oh God, I pray that you would use this church and all gospel churches to raise us up in the wilderness as a great pyramid of hope and joy. Father, I pray that every person here would realize you have given them a gift out of your kindness. You have carefully measured out the way they're wired and shaped. And you've done everything necessary in your ascending and descending to equip us with a spiritual gift. So, Father, use us to spread hope, power, salvation. Lord, here in the city, our neighborhood, our businesses, all universities, Washington, D.C., all state capitals, the spreading, authoritative, love, holiness, saving a message of Christ everywhere until the whole universe is filled with the message that Christ is King. Use us, fill us with the Spirit anew today. In Christ's name I pray, amen.